For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were, were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 1-4. Hello, and thank you for listening to Yours in Christ, where John gives away his seminary degree for free. My name is Dan. How you doing today, John? Doing good. I'm actually doing very good. That's great. I had uh, the first day of the semester today. It's, nice. It's February 3rd for our listeners. It's bio won't be released for a couple of weeks, but yeah, it's February 3rd today, and so good day. Great day. Yeah. Last right. semester, too. That's true. Yeah. Lord willing, I will graduate May 21st, also my wife's birthday. Oh, happy big birthday day to, to celebrate. I know. It's going to be so wonderful. Yeah, she gets you around the house more. <laughs> yeah, especially because I probably won't have a job immediately after graduating, so she'll have me around the house a lot. Yeah. <laughs> a bit too much. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. You busy had a busy day. day, yeah. Yeah, but I'm here. Good. We got the new setup in my uh, my office, mm-hmm. so we're excited about that. So, so hopefully you guys see some improvements in the yeah. coming months as we figure out this new space. <laughs> yep. And we are joined today by our good friend, mutual friend, and a guest host, Michael Wartell. Hi, everybody. What's up? Not much. How are you, John? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, so glad, good to have you. I got to say, the show... <laughs> It's always better when we have two other hosts as opposed to just me and Dan. And yeah, because face it, I suck. No, <laughs> no, <you Dan>. stop. <laughs> but it is better. It is better. And we had that once, and then we lost the recording. So I'm I'm very excited about this episode. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, why don't you give the, our our listeners just a little snippet about who you are and all that stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, my name is Michael Wartell. Um, I am 28. I'm a nurse practitioner um, in the Doylestown area, working in a acute care setting. Love that. Um, mm. Passionate follower of Jesus, uh, heavily invested in small group ministry. Nice. Ton of uh, interest in in worship and what that looks like biblically. And uh, that's a that's a little brief overview of, cool. of where I'm at in life. Yeah. So you're are you getting your PhD in nursing right now? Is that right? Uh, something equivalent to that. So okay. I'm getting what's called a doctor of nursing practice. It's called ah, a DNP. It's gotcha. still a terminal degree um, equivalent to a PhD. Nice. A little bit more practically focused. Right. Kind of like, I guess the difference would be a doctorate in theology versus a doctorate in ministry. Doctorate yeah. in ministry is more practical. Yeah. Absolutely. I got you. That yep. makes sense. Well, we're going to have a doctor on the show. <laughs> Actually, yeah. did I tell you this joke? So you know how... Sometimes in the hospital culture, you know, doctors treat their nurses kind of not what great. Yes. And so, and there's that kind of respect to you doctors out there. I know we have some doctors listening, listeners, but there can be a pump, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I was, did I tell you this joke that you should, you should have the nurses call you nurse, but then when the doctors come in and say, excuse me, nurse, you'd be like, uh-uh, <laughs> doctor, please. Dr. Male Nurse Michael to you, yeah. actually. Because <laughs> you'll be a doctor. <laughs> I will. So you could pull that off. That'd be awesome. That's great. But but mad kudos to all my MD and DO friends. Yes. They, you've worked your tails off and you deserve that title. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Uh, before we introduce today's topic, I wanted to just kind of briefly touch on something very quickly. So uh, in the first official episode, um, the Foundation for Your Entire Existence Part, part 1, we opened with this statement from Herman, Herman Bovink that the, the lifeblood of dogma, dogmatics is, is mystery. Or in other words, the lifeblood of what gives life to the theological endeavor is mystery. And that needs to be sort of foundational to our thinking because the reality is um, unless God reveals himself, he is completely unknowable. And we haven't really gone back to that idea too much. It hasn't, formed, it hasn't been as foundational to our discussions as I'd like it to be. So... I just want to put it out there that that's on our radar, and um, that's such an important idea to hold because that is the f- at the heart of worship and also, I think, at the heart of what it means to be a human being in the image of God in the sense that we don't have the answers to every question, and we never will because we worship a God who's omniscient, and, and we won't be omniscient, and so there's there needs to be a sort of rest in that fact mm-hmm. and a trust in the Lord in that Um 
And that ties really well into what we talked about a couple episodes ago about univocal, equivocal, and analogical. But but we'll get to that in Doctrine of God. But I, all that to say, um, I'm hoping moving forward that we can appreciate, we can keep at center this idea that that you know the unsearchable riches of God and His glory needs to be in the forefront of our thinking. And the other thing too is to also remember that everything that God does throughout Scripture is for His own glory and and to mm-hmm. make His name famous. And so that has not been as sort of overtly central to what we've talked about so far. Um, it's, it's definitely been in the background, but, but anyway, I just want to put that out there and, mm. and to kind of say, we want to keep that central. We need to keep those two things central. So mm-hmm. that's what we're going to do for moving forward. Cool. All right. So let's get into today's topic. Today is the first, uh, in a series of biblical theology episodes. If you don't know, if you're, if you're not sure what we mean by biblical theology, you can listen to our last episode or Dan and I broke that down and mm-hmm. talked about that. But today's topic in particular in that regard is big term hermeneutics. Mm. Who's <laughs> so, that, John? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who is hermeneutics? <laughs> not 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 a person's name. That's the joke. Um, uh, hermeneutics, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. Uh, the way I kind of think about hermeneutics is, um, if you remember our ep- episode exegesis, that's another term, exegesis. So exegesis is basically like, uh, principles and tools to how to interpret the particular verses in front of you. And then hermeneutics, the way I like to think about it is her- hermeneutics are the principles and tools that you use to understand the story as a whole. So hermeneutics, the Bible as a whole, exegesis, uh, the verses that are directly in front of you that you're mm. looking at. So there's mm. obviously overlap there, right? much overlap there. Um, but that's kind of how I think about it. So hermeneutics helps you piece the parts together to form a coherent whole. That's what mm. I'm trying to say. Mm. So that's kind of what we'll be talking about. So, and you know, to put it boots on the ground explanation, like how do we understand the Babylonian exile in light of the whole narrative flow of Scripture? How do we interpret, you know, Deuteronomy 8, uh, 28, for example, in the context of the whole story? Mm-hmm. How do we understand Psalm 50 or Galatians 3.25 in the context of the whole story? All that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. That's hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so to kind of give you to help you anticipate kind of what we're, how we're going to break this down and give you an outline of the episode. What we're going to do is we're going to provide just some basic introductory comments about hermeneutics, unfold that a little bit more. And then we're going to give a quick overview of certain hermeneutical approaches that people have used throughout history. We're going to do that very quickly. Um, Cause then the, really the meat that I really want to get into is we're going to re- uh, unpack Luke 24 in particular, and that's going to be sort of the focus of our episode. Okay. Yeah. Right. And I, I love where that episode, where this episode is going to go. Um, you had mentioned something, John, that I just want to toss out there for yeah, the listeners. For um, you know, we, we really want to emphasize that while we are teaching and we want you to understand things with your head, we also want things to translate into your oh, heart. Yes. I forgot about that. And, uh, and you. so, you know, our, our head goal, if you will, in this, in this lesson is for you to see the redemptive historical hermeneutic as it's rooted in scripture. Yeah. Now that's a big fancy mouthful of words right there, but what we want it to translate to in your heart mm-hmm. is we want you to be able to see how the entire Bible is about Jesus. It's yeah. about the Christ. And so. it reveals him. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning that. I, I totally passed over that. Haha <laughs> joke. Um, <laughs> so yeah, one, the, that's the other thing we're going to introduce to these episodes is for every episode from now on, we're going to have a head goal, kind of the thing we, that's important to learn here and then a heart goal, which is how that thing needs to transform our worship, transform our, what it means to trust in the Lord and all that sort of stuff. Thank mm. you. So yeah, yeah, so that's our, our head goal is just the, the particular approach we'll be taking is kind of called a redemptive historical hermeneutic. So understanding what that means and how it's rooted in scripture itself. And then heart goal, um, to see that the entire scripture is about Jesus and that needs to just put us in awe. Mm. Yeah. All right. So um, let's go. Let's move forward. Let's. You want guys want to talk about sort of the basics? Um, sure. Yeah. You want to take it off? With yeah, the, I can take it. Yeah. So the first question that we have here is, can we even demi- Can we even derive meaning from a text? Yeah. Have you come across? Have any either of you guys come across that in sort of college or whatever where? You know, people talk about, oh, you, you know, it's all reader response. You can't really derive what the author's intent was or anything like that. Yeah, I, th- I think early in my college career, uh, I went to a small liberal arts college in upstate mm-hmm. New York. Um, definitely had some some uh, 
younger classmates who really adhered to thinking similar to that. Didn't mm-hmm. really feel like there was a way that you could take scripture and actually find any meaning out of it. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And I mean, um, a lot of what's been around in linguistic and literature circles has been not just f- towards scripture, but even towards just anyone's written thing mm-hmm. record at all. Um, but yeah, and it's been especially used sort of as a weapon against Christianity and against scripture itself. And I think, you know, the answer to that question for us Christians, can we derive meaning from a text? We have to go back to prolegomena, the first handful of episodes that we did. Because we have to remember that, you know, God, he He is the source of all life and all knowledge. And, and so he created our minds. And um, if you listen to our episode, Nature Calls, where we talked about um, that God, the son being the eternal word and how f- the father eternally speaks the word, the eternal word and, um, how, so therefore language is, is in that sense eternal mm-hmm. and that the human language that we possess now and we work with now is analogical to God's eternal speaking. Mm. And so in that sense, uh, this, this provides us with a ground for the meaning of all things in general, and especially with language. Because again, the question goes back to how can an infinite God reveal himself to such finite, feeble, and fallen creatures as us? And it's like, you have to remember, if he's God, he can reveal himself just as easily to an ant as he can a human being. Mm -hmm. But in fact, he's actually made us and ordered us so that he might be known. And so, so to suggest otherwise is to assume that the biblical God does not exist. Mm. And that's why that really needs to form our foundation moving forward about hermeneutics, understanding the scripture. That needs to be in the backdrop. Um, so, so John, so, I mean, we're talking about some, some real heady stuff here. So yeah. as we then look at, you know, how are we going to derive meaning from a text? You know, are there principles that we can use moving forward? How does that, how does that work? How do oh, we the, begin to... Yeah. So, uh, well, b- before I want to get that, I also want to, we have to preface that with, we also need, so if God is the sort of ultimate controller of all meaning or whatever... Again, let's go back to mystery. That's the other thing we need to keep in mind, that especially when it comes to God's word, we will never exhaust its meaning. Mm. We mm. can never become sort of the uh, the mind that controls God's word, if I can put it that way, where we understand every little iota of it and exhaust it, and, and understand it exhaustively so. Um, but nevertheless, God does control meaning. He knows his own word comprehensively. Um, so that's our foundation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in terms of principles... Um, you're talking about like, what do you mean by like, well, you know, is there, is there like a stepwise approach? How do we, how do we begin to, how do we know, begin to derive, derive meaning, meaning yeah, from the right. text? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's always a couple of guidelines. Um, um, cause you do want to appreciate the author's historical and cultural context. You don't want to just n- throw that out. And I think unfortunately with a lot of popular preaching nowadays, there is a um, application of the text is mistaken for interpretation of the mm. text, you know, where the, the, the preacher really hasn't done some of the work to extrapolate what the text means in its original context. They just jump right to an p- application and what it is and what it means for you and all mm. that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. which, you know, obviously you, that is necessary. If you don't apply the word to yourself, then what is even the point? Right. But there is a confusion between application and interpretation. They're not the same thing, and we need to keep that in mind. And so one thing that can help with that, obviously, is trying to understand the historical context as much as we can. I mean, obviously, we are 2,000-plus years removed from it, mm-hmm. uh, so there's a limit to that. But um, we need to kind of enter the world of the text as much as possible mm-hmm. and to appreciate the literary context, too, like the genre. Mm. This is kind of big, and I mean, it's been big for a while, but... You know, if you re- if you're reading poetry, you need to keep in mind it's poetry. So there might be figurative a lot of figurative language. There might be a lot of imagery, things that aren't meant necessarily to be taken literally. Mm. Things like that. Um, like when Jesus says, "If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off." Mm. Mm-hmm. I still have both of my hands. <laughs> mm-hmm. I have sinned with both of them. Mm-hmm. If I, you know, in a literal sense, mm-hmm. I don't plan on chopping either of them off. Mm-hmm. And I think. If I did, the Lord would be like, that was really dumb. We should not have done that. 
because <laughs> uh, yeah, if you if you take that as literally, you know what mm-hmm. I mean. So mm-hmm. yeah, but but nevertheless, there are obviously parts in the scripture that are meant to be understood literally, and so you have to appreciate the genre to get that, um, sure. and also to appreciate historical narrative, uh, prophecy, and have an, a respect for those genres, mm-hmm. and to read also the other another principle is to read it for its flow. You know, so people will pull out texts out of context all the time and make them say whatever they wanted to say. But you have to understand it in terms of the flow of its passage. What is sort of the the flow of the narrative leading up to this passage mm-hmm. that you're reading? Or if, especially if you're reading Paul. Paul is very linear in his mm-hmm. thinking. So what is the flow of his argument as mm-hmm. he's leading up to whatever the passage you're reading is? You know, So for example, a, a classic case. I may have mentioned this on a previous episode. One time I saw like a Christian greeting card where it quoted... Uh, I think it was Luke 4, and it was um, <coughs> all these I will give to you if mm. just bow down and worship me. Yeah, you're cracking up now thinking about it. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so obviously that does not mean God will give you whatever he, you want if you worship him because the context is <laughs> Satan is saying that to Jesus. <laughs> so, you know. Yeah. Or another classical example, right? I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Oh, classic mm-hmm. on all the sports stars. Yeah, yep. right, exactly. Mm-hmm. The context, it, now we want to appreciate how people apply that to themselves in that sense that there's there is some truth to that uh, in terms of how people apply Absolutely. it. But you also need to appreciate the context, and the context is actually suffering, mm-hmm. which is remarkable. Paul is saying, he, in that context, he's saying, like, I can I can be rich, I can be poor. Jesus is enough for me, so I'm mm-hmm. good. Like, either way, you know, I can be rich and not turn that into an idol. I can be poor and not think, woe is me. Mm-hmm. You know, that is more what he's talking about. Um, and I think that has that actually has a lot more power than when you use it how people tend to use it. Because mm-hmm. then it's like, when you're in the throes of life, that verse, there's um, much more richness to that verse when, when times are hard than simply as a motivator for you to get to the gym, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and Michael being our resident uh, person in shape. Yes. <laughs> have, have you used it that way? Before? I, I use it every morning. That's the first thing I quote in the morning <laughs> nice. when I roll out of bed. Nice. So, yeah. So, so go ahead, Dan. Now that we introduced the basics, do you want to start talking about the four different approaches? Um, yeah, we can jump into that. Yeah. Um, I think, but I think also another important comment to make real quick is like when it comes to interpretation, Mm -hmm. like God has given us a community. He's given, Mm -hmm. he's made us a church for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so we need each other. You know, I I think what I want to also, another principle that we, this is sort of a negative principle in in terms of something to avoid is sticking to your own private interpretation of whatever text. I mean, obviously, yes, absolutely read scripture on your own for Mm -hmm. sure. You need to do that as a believer. But at the same time, um, I, as a, a Western American, will have a particular perspective on the text right. and, might not, and might not be able to see certain things in the text that are there, but I can't see them because of my own cultural thing. Like mm-hmm. uh, quickly, a story uh, that really struck me and has continued to struck me. A friend of mine uh, was basically leading a Bible study with Americans and people from Senegalians, people mm-hmm. from Senegal, mm-hmm. and they were reading the story of Joseph. And so... The question was asked, sort of, what is the point of this story, or what did God sort of do with this story? And all of the Westerners said, man, look at Joseph's faithfulness in the face of all these trials. That's kind of what they noticed. Mm-hmm. Noticed very individualistic, very focused on the single character, mm-hmm. and still, nevertheless, very true. Right. That is a major part of the story. But w- what the Senegalians notice? Man, look at how the Lord restored the broken family, mm. Mm. and how he used Joseph to restore this just terrible situation in the family mm. and to um, also to protect an entire nation and people group. So you notice much more communal and uh, minded and all that sort of stuff. Right. And both understandings, absolutely correct, but yeah. there are different perspectives brought out different truths in the text. And so I think we need to appreciate that as well. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. All right. So uh, are you guys ready to jump into? Yeah, let's do it. I'm excited. All right. So we're going to overview different hermeneutical approaches. These are approaches that we personally won't be taking. And um, we're going to run through this pretty much as quickly as possible because this is going to be closer to our That's Not Even True episode where we just ran ran through Mm -hmm. different ways of seeing things. And going to be similar sort of approach now. We're just going to jump through them. Uh, They're meant to be, you know, to be put on your radar as a way of saying, like, these are ways that people have read Scripture in the past. 
and 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 you know there's other ways of doing it and all that kind of stuff right. if you want to read more into it you can you you know here's the terms you need to know you can do it on your own right and to kind of just form a backdrop to what we're going to be talking about mm-hmm. for sure all right so the first one um there's this for uh <coughs> the first hermeneutical approach i guess you can call it like the medieval approach this was popular amongst the later church fathers and medieval thinkers and they talk about a fourfold reading of the text where it's there's the literal reading the moral reading the allegorical reading and the mystical reading and very quickly literal meaning you know exactly what you would think just what the text says straightforward plain and simple but then the moral reading is like what does what moral lesson is in the text that we can sort of derive so like for example the dietary laws in leviticus they'll look at that and be and sort of allegorize about you know shrimp equals this moral vice that we need to avoid. Mm-hmm. So that can be legitimate and sometimes illegitimate reading of it. Um, and then there's an allegorical reading where they sort of find a symbol in the text and then try to um, derive meaning from this symbol. And sometimes that can be a legitimate symbol. So for example, the temple in the Old Testament, that's a legitimate symbol. Right. Or the sacrificial lamb is a legitimate simple symbol. Sometimes it can be illegitimate. So sometimes you'll find like, uh, they're trying to make meaning of the five loaves and the two fish, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, th- this this means I don't know that these five tribes of Israel I don't know whatever, um, and those aren't meant to be symbols. The five right. loaves and two fish. There's no significance to the numbers there. It's right. just mentioning that that's what happened. Uh, and then the mystical reading is they try to find ways in which the text is communicating a heavenly reality or like a way that the text um, reveals Jesus in a mystical way. So that's going to sound a little bit like what we're going to do. But the key difference is that, again, they will read Jesus into the text that is not organic to the text itself. So, Mm -hmm. for example, the classic example is um, Rahab letting down the scarlet scarf to let the spies into uh, Jericho and how, oh, that symbolizes, that reminds us of the blood of Jesus and Mm -hmm. how it's red and he brings us in through his blood or whatever. Okay, that's not, uh, you know, Maybe that's fine for a devotional reading for yourself, but that's not organic to the text itself. There's no significance to the reason the, to the scarf being red. It's just saying that like it's not a, it's not a symbol within the text itself. And so sure. we need to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, another like histor- uh, hermeneutical method is um, what's called the historical critical. So this is like <sighs> these people who hold to this view basically claim to look at scripture scientifically. And they claim to be neutral. You know, we're not assuming the existence of God. So we're just going to read the Bible like any other book, mm-hmm. uh, not as this God-given book, but as just like any other book so that we can sort of scientifically derive meaning from it. Mm. And so, you know, one way this comes out and has come out historically is that it argues, for example, that the books of the Bible, you know, they're, com- they're really composed of earlier sources. Uh, and then these earlier sources actually come, these earlier written sources actually come from even earlier sort of oral tales that people would tell around the campfire. And so if we can discover sort of the context of these original oral tales, then we can get closer to the original meaning. Mm-hmm. Whole host of problems with that. I mean, let me give you an example real quick. So uh, the classic example is what's called the documentary hypothesis, which where they say like the first five books of Moses weren't written by Moses. They're actually composed of five different authors. So like Genesis was written by at least four other earlier written sources. Right. And those came earlier written sources came from a whole plethora of possibly dozens of other oral stories. Mm-hmm. And that and that like the claim, you know, we can discover these different sources by looking at inconsistencies in the text. And, you know, uh and so there's a whole bunch of problems with this view. I I don't want to unpack it too much, but one of the major problems with it is that for all of its claims to be scientific, it has actually no physical evidence to support it whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these people claim, oh, Genesis was written by four or more different authors. Mm-hmm. You would think that we might have a manuscript or an ancient piece of text that would indicate this to us, where we have, you know, it has a, it has a paragraph from Genesis, and then in our Bible, a whole bunch of stuff in the middle, and then some other, and then, in, you know, we would have some sort of physical evidence that that proves, oh, look, here's this other author that was copied and all that kind of stuff. Right, but those things don't exist, no, right? No, and that's the thing. You're, they're claiming to be scientific. They're claiming to be neutral. But in order to have this view, they have to assume that the, that the Bible does not have a divine author who 
ordains all of history. Right. And two, again, you're claiming to be scientific, but you have no physical evidence to support this whatsoever. Right. Um, and so it's it's incredibly more speculative than the scholars who support this view might like to admit. Um, and and that's the other thing. There's no scholarly cons- you read these guys. There's no scholarly scholarly consensus on how many authors, the context of these oral stories, or anything. There's no there's mm-hmm. almost no consensus whatsoever mm-hmm. on any point of detail. And so it's just like, what what is the the value of this view then? It, you know, um, and and even then, even if we could somehow get to this mysterious oral tradition where it comes from in the context of it, does that exhaust the meaning of the text? You know, if we understand that original context, the stories around the campfire and all that kind of stuff, does that exhaust the, the meaning of it? I don't think so. Um, I really don't. So, uh, so again, that goes back to prolegomena. This is one of the major reasons why we don't hold this view is because the Bible doesn't hold this view for itself. Mm-hmm. Because we believe in the God who is the ultimate author of it. And I want to read this this quote by a scholar named E.J. Young, who I believe taught at Westminster a while back. It's a great quote, and this is a useful critique for this view. So, um, <clears throat> there are those who apparently think that it is possible to approach the Bible with a neutral attitude. Their position seems to be, let us study Scripture as we would any other book. Let us subject it to the same tests as we do other writings. If it proves to be the Word of God, well and good. But if not, let us accept the facts, yada, yada, yada. And then E.J. Young goes on to say, the so-called neutral attitude towards the Bible is in reality not neutral at all. For it begins by rejecting the lofty claims of divinity which the Bible makes, and it assumes that the human mind of itself can act as judge of divine revelation. This is, in effect, to substitute the mind of man as ultimate judge and reference point in place of God himself. And I think that really nails it. Because that, that, key, that key phrase, right, if it proves to be the word of God, what standard and criteria could you possibly invent to, to for something that something has to meet in order to be the word of God? It's like, okay, it's the word of God if God reveals, if it's God's revelation of himself. That's mm-hmm. the criteria. Why? Because that's the criteria he puts for himself. You know right. what I mean? Like, oh, it's just... And because if the criteria comes from you, then it, it by nature cannot be the word of God. If yeah, the right. criteria is coming from man, you it's know? inferior to it, God. Exactly. So therefore, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. And that goes back to what we've talked about in so many episodes before. God has to be our starting point mm-hmm. and our reference point. All right. Uh, so uh, the, I think the last is this the last view. No. Uh, one of the other views that we're going to review is um, just very quickly is subjectivism. This one is about as. This this is very popular nowadays. Uh, it's kind of, yeah. And this view basically says, rather than trying to first understand, understand Scripture without regard to like our biases and our past experiences and our own context, we should actually do the opposite. That like reading the Bible with by interjecting our own sort of stuff into it is actually a good way to read it. Mm. Um, you know, it's the idea that the author... The, the, in other words, the, 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 the idea that the author has priority over meaning of the text is, is actually oppressive and is a bad thing. Mm. You know, he's oppressing his audience by saying, by assuming my, my authorial intent is better than whatever. Than that how does sound it. really modern. Yeah, yeah, right? Well, mm-hmm. especially when I use the term of oppressive. Yeah. That's kind of the cutting edge now. Because <laughs> it, it's what's called the hermeneutics of suspicion. You know, so basically it's this idea, since history is written by the victors, right, then what were the political and economic motives of the authors of whatever text, of the Bible or whatever? Because they're, So they're the ones who are recording history that happened X amount of years before, and they're writing it from the position of being the victors, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So how, are, how is their account of history being used to oppress the people of their own day? You know, and what's interesting about that, and again, this is a little bit off topic, but I mean, these authors were no in no way worldly victors. I mean, That's, they were oppressed. Yeah, they mm-hmm. were, you know, dominated and persecuted by the culture around them. Mm-hmm. They faced hardship every day. So to look at it through this lens, flawed from that perspective. Yeah, and I think I absolutely. And the other thing is, you read the Bible, read the Bible's own account, the author's own account of of like their own leadership. There is no good king in all of scripture. And then you're going to tell me that the victors wrote this to oppress people. They're, mm-hmm. they're writing that their, their political and religious and ethical leaders were terrible. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the position of a 
person who has power who's trying to oppress other yeah. people. Or just read Psalms and listen to King David talk about himself half the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like King David does not think he's perfect. There you go. So, yeah. And like, so like if I can give an example, right? So like um, uh, um, the book of Judges, if you read the book of Judges, it basically yeah. sets up Judah as being the greatest tribe ever in Israel and Benjamin as kind of stinky, and then everyone else is really stinky. And that sort of prepares you for the book of Samuel, where it's Saul from the tribe of Benjamin is not as good as David, who's from the tribe of Judah. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that, you know, book of Judges is written to oppress or control or to promote the other tribes of Israel and to like promote Judah as being awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, um, that assumes that God is not the ultimate authority and the ultimate author of scripture. Mm. Um, and that's what we need to go back to. I think we can, we can make uh, other particular critiques, but in terms of where we fall back on, that's what we fall back on. Um, Cause like, let's, I mean, let's look at it, right? Uh, sure. The Bible has been used to oppress people in the past. Absolutely. We can't yeah. say no to that. Um, but at the same time, scripture says that both men and women are a Maggio day. Uh, and that's the basis for equality. You don't right. have that idea that we're creating the image of God and with inherent dignity in dignity. You have no basis for the very equality which you're claiming to fight for. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing, too, is, you know, people say the Bible's been used to oppress women. Absolutely. Can't disagree with that. Yep. Yet, uh, you know, Ruth is about two women trying to st- trying to uh, strive and survive, you know, in the midst of death and poverty. Right. You know, uh, people make the claim that the Bible is, is, is um, suppresses female sexuality and has been used that way. Sure. But Song of Songs oh, <laughs> absolutely opens, <laughs> it opens with the beginning. So I'm not one of those Song of Songs is all about sex. I think right. that's an oversimplification, nor am I one of those. It's all allegory. It's, it's, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get too much into that. But, but nevertheless, Song of Songs does open with a f- woman extolling her excitement to be with her spouse in the marriage covenant. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's celebrating Mm-hmm. In that moment, female sexuality. I don't think right. we can get around that. So anyway, um, yeah. So so the, the, that that whole hermeneutic is valuable in the sense of like we do need to remember that things can be used to oppress people. But mm-hmm. in terms of treating it as the ultimate way to drive meaning from Scripture, we just run into trouble mm-hmm. and we run into problems. Mm-hmm. And I can go more on that, but we ha- we have to keep going. This mm-hmm. is we're going too long as it is. Um, this last method that we're going to review is kind of the main launching point for what we're going to talk about and after our break cool so this is the, the historical grammatical method you also might see it as grammatical historical method same thing so basically uh, it says that <coughs> um you know understanding how the text would have been understood in its original context is really the key to getting at the meaning so if you understand the original author human author and the original audience you can better understand the text uh it reminds me of all the political debates right now with People who are like originalists with the Constitution. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's this. I mean, there's a sense in which that's right, right. Mm-hmm. And especially approaching Scripture, mm-hmm. if your interpretation completely negates that, mm-hmm. I would really question your interpretation. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, well, let's let's get into it. So like, mm-hmm. so that's why it's called the grammatical historical. You want to pay attention to the grammar of the of the text itself. Mm-hmm. You know, the way the language works and all that kind of stuff, as well as the historical context in which it was written. And so like, so like along with the, you know, so if you're reading, let's say you're reading, um, Exodus, you know, uh, you're reading the story about, um, God putting himself on the rock. This is what Paul was referring to in first Corinthians 10, the passage we opened with today, you know, Moses and the Israelites, how would Moses and the Israelites understood that moment and the water flowing from the rock after God being struck, you know, in Exodus 17, Mm -hmm. uh, if we can understand how Moses and the original audience would have understood that, then that's that essentially exhausts the meaning or, or really gets at the mm-hmm. essential meaning of the text. Um, and so in this way, if we if their understanding is if we interpret the text this way, we can control meaning, right? That we, we avoid speculation, we can avoid a lot of the problems that we've mentioned before by restricting it to its immediate context and the to the text itself. Mm-hmm. You know, you're text focused. And so we don't have the arbitrary senses like the medieval people, you know, we don't have the guesswork with that allegory or, you know, we avoid the problems of the historical critical and the, and the subjectivism stuff. 
It but, sounds almost like a pendulum swing in reaction to the yeah. errors of other right. um, ways of exegeting. Yeah, it claims to be highly scientific, but in a in a way that I think is still Christian <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to the historical critical approach. But um, and and this method I think is a great starting point. But again, it's not without its own problems. So, for example, you avoid the guesswork of allegory and mysticism and some of that stuff. But is there really no guesswork with this approach? Is it as objective as it claims to be? Because, you know, if 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 figuring out the meaning of the text is somewhat exhausted by the view of the original author and the original audience, like how close can you actually get to that? Right. You know, um, so like, for example, um, uh, you know, Isaac in Genesis 22, his near sacrifice, uh, it was actually about, you know, the original author was writing this to sort of help create some sort of political unity amongst the tribes of Israel later on in their story, you know, yada, yada, yada. You're, you're still speculating about the historical context in this, in which this was written and how the original audience might've understood it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, th- I don't think you're avoiding the guesswork. Uh, and the other thing I think we want to ask is, is meaning really limited to how it would have been read by the original audience? Does that exhaust its meaning mm. or, or, um, can we actually gain new meaning as audience members now in a way that is still legitimate? Right. Mm-hmm. I think we can say yes to that question. Yeah, because, I mean, part of what we're talking about is how the Bible is an unfolding story. Exactly. So if we're only looking specifically at a single point in time and how yeah. they would understand it, it would prevent us from seeing how the rest of the story plays out in a way that we're privileged enough to see that now. Right. And that gets me to this next point. Right. It's totally doubtful that Moses identified the rock in Exodus 17 as Christ. Mm-hmm. Completely improbable. Mm-hmm. Yet that's exactly what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10. And so the historical method, the historical grammatical method, cannot read Exodus 17 in that way, in the same way that Paul does. Mm-hmm. Because remember, we're on the side of the New Covenant now, and that's actually advantageous to understanding the Old Covenant. That's not, right. that's not a hindrance, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so now if you're listening, you might be saying to yourself, okay, Paul can read it that way because he was an apostle. And so the apostles can read Jesus into the Old Testament because they're apostles. Really, though? So what you're saying is that their roles as apostles automatically grants them the authority to read the Bible any way they want. You know, God will hold us, you and me, accountable for how we interpret the Bible but he won't hold his apostles accountable for how they interpret the Bible. Mm. He sort of gives them free reign. I think that's rather arbitrary. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I can give this example, Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles, what, the, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 10 by seeing Christ as the rock in Exodus 17, Jesus, Paul, and the other apostles do something very similar in Matthew 12, 39 to 42, Luke 9, 31, Luke 22, 7, John 1, 29, John 2, 21, John 3, 14, John 5, 46, John 6, 35 and 51, John 11, 25, Acts 1, 16 to 17, Acts 2, 25 to 28, Acts 3, 22, Acts 8, 30 to 35, Romans 5, 14, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, 27, 45, Galatians 3, 16, 4, 24, Philippians 3, 3, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 2, uh, 10 to 12, and Jude 5, and basically the entire book of Hebrews. They interpret the Bible in a similar way in all of those examples. So what do we do with that? Mm. What if they're actually teaching us how to read the Bible? Mm. Uh, And what if we need to read the Bible like they did? Mm -hmm. They're giving us examples of how to read our own Bible. I I think that's what what they're doing. Yeah, amen to that. But as we move forward, here's what we need to keep in mind. You know, while the grammatical historical method, you know, it helps us take the Bible seriously as the Bible in its own context, helps us uh, appreciate the original human author and audience, it often forgets that there's a greater author. That there's one ultimate divine author who has orchestrated the entire text from beginning to end, including how it would be interpreted. Mm -hmm. He ordained how the apostles would interpret the Old Testament. That was not accidental. Right. Right. So, if you go back and listen to our episode that we released the other week, Exegesis, right? That's where we talk about it. God is the ultimate author of Scripture, and he ordained even the lives of those who he, whom he would use to write his word. Right. Uh, and so since that's the case, he knew, he knew exactly what the word meant to its original audience, in its original context, and how the apostles would use it 
and future generations. Mm -hmm. He ordained both. Mm -hmm. And so does the Bible, here's the question that we want to have before our break. Does the Bible itself provide its own hermeneutical method from within its own pages? All the other hermeneutical methods we've talked about, um, the grammatical historical has some uh, support within the Bible itself, obviously, but the other ones don't. Mm -hmm. This, the other ones are really sort of our own ways of trying to understand God's word. Mm-hmm. But does God's word actually provide us with a way to understand it? Mm-hmm. Does it have a hermeneutical principle within its own pages that we should follow? I think it does. And that's what we're going to tackle after the break. Yours in Christ is a podcast where John Shirk, joined by different guests and hosts, seek to give away a seminary degree 100% for free. You can tune into new episodes every Friday afternoon and be sure to leave a review as well. We appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. Welcome back to Yours in Christ, where we give away John's seminary degree for free. But not really. (laughs) Well, welcome back, guys. We're going to be diving into the hermeneutical approach that is revealed within the Bible itself. And in order to do that, we're going to be reading a little bit from Luke chapter 24. Mm -hmm. We're going to be reading from verses 13 to 27, and then take a little hop um, up to verses 44 to 47. So again, we're reading Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. And it reads, That very day, the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And while they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all of this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Hmm. Moving forward to verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds and understand understanding to the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. All right. Amen. Mm. I love these verses so much. Yeah, this is a a juicy one. Yeah. So, context, right? Let's start with context. Always a good place to start. Yeah. Especially with this one. (laughs) Yeah, because we're going to use the principles principles we mentioned earlier to unfold the hermeneutical principle that we're going to do for basically the rest of the life of this podcast. So, context, right? This is after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, And keep in mind, right, they're leaving Jerusalem, and they're like, Jesus, or they're like to this person, haven't you heard this guy we thought was going to redeem Israel and accomplish salvation, implying, in other words, they didn't think he accomplished it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what they're saying. So because of their understanding of God's kingdom and God's chosen people and salvation, you know, these disciples expected the Messiah to lead a military campaign against Rome mm-hmm. uh, and become victorious in this conquering and then reestablish God's eternal kingdom on earth so that all the prophecies about the Messiah in the Hebrew Bible would be fil- fulfilled all at once. They were mm-hmm. expecting this all at once fulfillment. And that's why, you know, obviously the image of Yeshua the Messiah being crucified completely upends all of that self, all that understanding. Um, you know, because instead Jesus was subjected to the Romans, the very ones he thought they were he was supposed to conquer, and murdered at their hands mm. after being handed over by them, handed over to them by those whom he was supposed to lead. Right? It was the Israelites' religious leaders who handed him over. Mm-hmm. It's just remarkable. And so, but then the tomb is mysteriously empty, and so. The disciples are perplexed by all this. That's that's our historical literary context, right? Absolutely. And so they're on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus unfolds for them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the things concerning himself. You know, we don't have any, we don't have a tape recorder that recorded his little talk there, or we don't have any sort of written record of what he said, right? Mm-hmm. So it must be totally lost to us. What Jesus said and taught there must have been, it's totally lost to us, right? Mm-hmm. It is? Well. Is it? No, because the ver- that's the very content which he taught them is the content which the apostles taught all the early Christians. Mm. We have we we have a semblance of what he said throughout the entire New Testament. Right. This goes back to what we said a couple episodes ago about the word act word pattern mm. in God's revelation. He provides a prof- prophetic word about a redemptive act he's going to accomplish. He does it, and then he provides an interpretive word. Mm. That's where we see it right here. And so what's Jesus' response to the disciples and their whole perplexing thing? What does he say? Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter his glory? He didn't say, man, you guys haven't taken my seminary class, did you? <laughs> he doesn't point out an intellectual problem. It's a faith problem. Mm-hmm. Right, And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right, And so therefore, according to Moses and according to all the prophets, it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. Right? Mm-hmm. That's his res- response. And so, so far, if you're listening, this is no surprise for us. Right? We know there are... Uh, you know, some t- passages and texts like Isaiah 53, you know, the Passover, probably Psalm 22, Psalm 16, maybe even Genesis 3:15, right about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You know, maybe Genesis 22 about Isaac's sacrifice. You know, these things are sort of are point to Jesus and maybe hint at his death and, and resurrection. So, so everything I've said so far shouldn't be a surprise, right? Mm-hmm. But is that what Jesus says here? Is, does he say, oh, here's some texts that point to what I'm talking about? No, it almost sounds like he's making the claim that the entire Old right. Testament is pointing to him. Exactly. The text that, you know, he uses the phrase Moses and all the prophets. Mm. And then later on, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. These are colloquial, colloquial ways of saying the entire Bible. Because right. keep in mind, they don't have a collected volume of all the scripture at that point that they called the Bible. There was no the Bible. You and I say the Bible. Right. People know what we're talking about. Right. So there, the Bible, quote-unquote, was Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, or sometimes just Moses and the prophets. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want to say the Bible, that's what you said in those days. That's what they mean. Uh, and so Jesus, he doesn't say some texts. He says the Bible, right? And then the phrase... Um, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We read that phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Greek, um, I'm going to butcher this because I, I always butcher pronouncing Greek, so forgive me. In pasais, tais, graphais, ta, peri, hiautu. That wasn't too bad. Sounds okay. great. Yeah. <laughs> I <laughs> couldn't if, tell you if you said yeah, it well or not. There's but. a Greek listener there like, oh. <laughs> 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 well, anyway, um, the, the word peri uh, is translated in English concerning in our translation. Um, but you can also translate it um, regarding or even about, mm-hmm. right? So there's really no clearer way for Luke to say the entire Bible is about Jesus. 
That's what he's saying, right? The, in all the scriptures, the things about himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, or in other words, all the scriptures are about him. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Because, I mean, think about it. I I do it myself and I hear it all the time. You know how often we avoid the Old Testament because it's hard, it's challenging, mm-hmm. and we don't necessarily think that we're going to encounter Jesus. In right. It. Yeah. The myth that the Old Testament is God's wrath and the New Testament is God's love. We'll, we'll get into that in future episodes, mm-hmm. but no. Uh, he inaugurates the covenant with uh, Moses and or, and Israel in the wilderness because he loves them. What does he say in Deuteronomy? It's not because you were the greatest nation around that I loved you. What does he say? I loved you because I love you. Mm-hmm. Begins and ends with me. He says mm-hmm. in in, in uh, what is it? Malachi three six. Uh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but he basically says, uh, "Because I do not change, you are not consumed." Mm-hmm. Right. He roots his love and his salvation of his people within his own being. But mm-hmm. anyway, so moving on, if you look at verses 46 to 47, where we read, you know, where Jesus says, thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That phrase, thus it is written, I want to focus on that. You know, it's often that phrase, thus it is written, was often used to introduce a quote from Scripture. Um, so, you know, Paul does this, he uses that exact phrase in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty five. Uh, and we see similar types of phrases. It might not be thus it is written. It might just be it is written. Gagraptai. Uh, we see similar things like that. And in, in throughout Matthew 4, Jesus is a temptation. He says it is written or I'll mm-hmm. say thus it is written. He says that in 11.10, Matthew 11.10, Matthew 21.13, Matthew 26.31, Mark 7.6, a whole bunch of other places throughout the New Testament. In other words, if you want to quote scripture, you say it is written or thus it is written. Mm-hmm. So in each instance, though, that I just cited and, and all the other ones that I can think of, a particular scripture, a particular verse is quoted. But what scripture does Jesus quote in Luke 24? He's, he's not quoting anything in no, specific. No, it's so good. Is there a verse in the Hebrew Bible that reads what Jesus says? He says, the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. There is no verse in the Hebrew Bible that says that. So, so what is Jesus saying? Well, to introduce the phrase, it is written, Jesus uses, or I guess Luke uses the Greek word, uh, hutos, mm. which is often translated thus. Um, but the word hutos is, it's a, it's a, what do they call a comparative conjunction and can be translated also as or in this way. So Jesus isn't saying, therefore, this one verse in scripture says, rather he's saying, this is the way scripture is written. Mm. That's why he says, thus it is written. So it's not, therefore, this one verse. It's, this is the way scripture is written, that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Mm. Wow. That is how scripture is written. So far from a few verses being about Jesus or pointing to him, and far from a few stories sort of abstractly reminding us of him, the entire Bible is chiefly and ultimately about him. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is what he says. He himself says this in Luke 24, right? So even more specifically, the entire Bible finds its center and controlling theme on his death and resurrection. Right. Now notice how I got there from Luke 24. I didn't read things into Luke 24 that are not there organically. Mm-hmm. I paid attention to the grammar and to the historical context mm-hmm. and derived from that what we're talking about. And that's, I think, how it should be done. And so this is why... Jesus himself says in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. Mm. Right? This is why he says in verse 46 of John 5, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Mm. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 10 to 11, concerning this salvation, or about this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what the person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Mm-hmm. So what is he saying? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, was in the prophets such that it was Christ speaking through them, writing about himself. Mm-hmm. Amazing. blow your mind. Amazing. Right? This so is Jesus why, is giving giving us a way that every time we open our Bible, yeah. we have a way to read it and start 
deriving meaning. Start yeah. looking for him in the text. Exactly. And yeah. so when you read your Bible, we often jump to how does this apply to me or how might this be about me a little too quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the first and only person who read his own Bible and said, look, there I am, and mm-hmm. was absolutely <laughs> correct. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is also why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, right? There was no, so what does he mean by the scriptures? There's no New Testament yet. No one, mm-hmm. the, the books of the New Testament haven't been collected yet. So Paul is referring to the Hebrew Bible. Right. Jesus died and rose again according to the scriptures, the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. And so Paul says also in Romans 1, God's gospel, which he promised beforehand throughout, uh, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures about his son. Mm. This is undergirding all those things. And so what we're going to do in the next several episodes is we're going to spend, spend, spend some time going through the scriptures to show how the Old Testament is actually about Jesus' desir- death and resurrection on its own terms. Mm-hmm. If you listen to our previous episode where I I mentioned I did David and Goliath a tad right. a little, just a little bit, mm-hmm. it's a little taste, a little taste to whet the appetite. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. The next few episodes we're going to take a particular theme, trace how it's developed throughout the story of Scripture and how it reveals Christ. And so, in other words, what we're not going to do is we're not going to arbitrarily read Jesus into the Old Testament. You know, we're just inserting him where he's not really found. We're actually going to pay attention. And, and show how the text itself reveals Jesus from itself, mm-hmm. right? And so um, my hope is that if you keep listening, that we can kind of help you do this yourself in your own Bible reading. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's I think that's a great encouragement. That was going to be my encouragement as well as, you know, for all of our listeners to use this as a tool mm-hmm. so that then on your own, like we mentioned, reading your Bible independently, yeah. you will be equipped to better find Jesus in the text mm-hmm. and subsequently be able to interpret it, yeah. you know, more and accurately and, and better. Absolutely. And I think, and one thing that we're going to get into in a future episode is, is the way that the pathway to applying an Old Testament text to you is actually through Christ. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. It's because you're in Christ that the text applies to you. Um, and we'll get, we'll get into that in future episodes, but yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts, you guys? Yeah, I'm just excited for the rest of this kind of mini series or whatever we want to call mm-hmm. it. Um, and all I know is, you know, I've been friends with John for a long time, and when he introduced this idea to me, probably like two years ago now. Uh, yeah, over yeah. Facebook chat at one time. Yeah, it it really does significantly change not only like your relationship with God, but also your understanding of how God's speaking to you through his word. Mm -hmm. And I know for me now I've slowly gotten this over the past two years and Michael's actually my Bible study leader (laughs) and uh, I help lead the group as well, but he does most of that stuff. And I think we've had very interesting discussions because of how we've both grown over the past years learning Mm -hmm. about this Mm -hmm. in our Mm -hmm. own studies through people in our lives or through our own readings. And it's really open up a whole new way of reading your Bible, making new connections. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I think because the scripture is about Christ and his person and work, what you'll also realize is that the gospel is throughout the old Testament. Mm -hmm. Cause, cause the God, what's the gospel? It's Christ's death and resurrection for you to pay the penalty for your sin to usher in God's kingdom, to reconcile heaven and earth, to bring in God's eschatological kingdom to its completion through through Christ, you know, to save and redeem his people in the fullest sense of the term. And so when you, like, that, so then you can now read your Old Testament and be like, dude, there's the gospel right there. Like, the Old Testament's not this book that you need to avoid because it's scary or because, like, there's no grace in it. No, far from, far from that. Mm. Um, yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's been this episode. Do you want to do a quick review? You guys want to do a quick review of kind of what we covered? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we started off with um, 
with just the idea of what is hermeneutics. And again, it's just looking at a way of interpreting the entire Bible. And mm-hmm. and our approach is to interpret the entire Bible and looking at it through the lens of Christ, you might say. Mm-hmm. We looked at a couple negative examples, if you will, a couple of ways, um, the historical critical model, the subjectivism, all these models that don't necessarily do the Bible justice and don't approach the Bible in the way that the Bible yeah. demands it should be approached. They, they have some value. Yes. But yeah. they're not exhaustive. Yeah. And then um, and then we we did an in-depth dive on Luke 24 mm-hmm. to look at the way the um, the Bible and Jesus himself um, wants the text to be interpreted. Yep. Yeah. Dan, do you want to introduce the next episode? Sure. Uh, so our next episode, we're obviously, as we always do, going to continue building on what we've talked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially what we want to do is introduce some new key concepts um, as we move forward in this discussion about biblical theology. Yeah. Um, John, you could probably speak more to. Yeah. Um, so we're still, we're still, we're, what we're doing right now is still building a little bit more of a foundation for interpretation. We're not going to jump right into it yet. Just a little bit more of a foundation. And then the episode after next is when we'll really dive headlong into the text. Uh, but we need just a little tiny bit more work before we get there. Cool. Um, also, I need more time to plan out this episode. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. We believe in honesty here. Honors <laughs> in Christ. Yeah. A little too much honesty sometimes. <laughs> um, so, yeah, please, if you're a listener, please send us your questions, critiques, and concerns to yoursinchristpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, leave us a review, please, because the only way people find us is if you leave us a review. Uh, and even if you think we suck, Leave us a review. Yeah. <laughs> but well, nice. That's probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we we acknowledge that, you know, some of our earlier episodes n- need a lot of work and they might be a little much. And we still need some work. Yeah. But we're getting there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to say this in the next episode. I'll say it now. Seminary. The, the phrase people always use is seminary is like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that like a lot of our earlier episodes are like that for people. John mm. is the fire hose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a great analogy, but it's not like you're trying to drink from a fire hose is less than helpful. So right. yeah. Anyway, if you get 5% of what John <laughs> is talking about, like that's good though. I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, you we can also might listen. Yeah. Well, we also might re-record some of that stuff to right. make it better. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, so yeah, let's do follow up resources. All right. So I could talk about the first one a yeah, little bit. It. So I started reading this book called The Unfolding. Uh, it's by a guy named Tim Brindle. Yeah, he's a buddy of mine. Yeah. PhD student at Westminster. Yeah. Also a professional rapper. I was going to mention, if you don't want to read a book yeah. or listen to an audio book, he actually, this whole f- this whole book is kind of condensed and Con- yeah form. condensed into this album that you can yeah. actually buy he has like a record label i don't remember what it is uh, off the top of my head but it's um, lamp mode records lamp mode, yeah yeah or recordings or something like that so you guys can check that one out um yeah it's called the unfolding yeah so what he'll do is he'll take a theme of scripture just like we're gonna do mm-hmm. and show how it develops and then reveals christ and he does this through rap right uh and so if you kind of want to just jump ahead <laughs> and get the content of what the episodes will be, you can you can just listen to that that album or get yeah. that book. The book's worth getting too. Yeah, you can buy them in package deal if you're really interested. Yeah. So mm-hmm. another book I would recommend is there's a book uh, Journeys with Jesus: Every Path in the Bible Leads Us to Christ by Dennis Johnson. Also helpful. Um, yeah. So those are the two. Oh, uh, I would also recommend. Um, I forgot about this one. There's a series of lectures that Tim Keller and Edmund Clowney give together. Uh, through at RTS, they gave it back in like 2001, where it's called um, "Preaching Christ to a Postmodern World." So, along with really seeing how Scripture applies to our sort of life in the postmodern world now, mm-hmm. they also do a lot what we're t- going to be talking about in terms of showing how the Old Testament reveals Christ, and it's mm-hmm. marvelous. I mean, you couldn't get two better people than Keller and, and Clowney to do that. So, cool, yeah. Uh, look that up as well. Um, you know they're they're it, they're doing these this class for demon students, uh, but the the students they're talking to are sort of all across the board in terms of background and stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. um, and they're also focusing most mostly on preaching and ministry. Mm-hmm. So it might not be as 
directly relevant if you're not a minister, but at the same time, I think you'll get a lot out of it, whoever you are. So cool. Yeah. Yep. All right. So let's end with the quote of the day. Shall we? Yes. Absolutely. Uh, I actually have two two quotes of the day that I want to use, if that's all right. The first one comes no, from... No, it's not okay. All right. Well, I'm doing it anyway, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> Giving away my seminary degree away for free, not yours. You can give all the quotes away for free you want, John. <laughs> that's true. Just please don't sue us if we're using your quote and you want credit because we well, don't have any money. I mean, I'm, I'm quoting other people right now, so... I know. Okay. I'm just, yeah. All right. So the first quote comes from Augustine. Uh, this is a classic quote. Everyone uses this one. The Old Testament is the new concealed, and the New Testament is the old revealed. Isn't that nice? Mm. I like that one. So much truth to that. And the next quote is a longer quote. It comes from Edmund Clowney's book, The Unf- Unfolding Mystery. I think I recommend this one in the next episode. But um, I think yeah. you have in the past as well. Have I? Okay. So uh, this, here's the quote. Anyone who has read, excuse me, anyone who has had Bible stories read to them as a child, knows that there are great stories in the Bible, but it is possible to know Bible stories, yet miss the Bible story. The Bible is much more than William Howe stated, quote-unquote, a golden casket where gems of truth are stored. It's more than that. It is more than a bewildering collection of oracles, proverbs, poems, architectural directions, annals, and prophets, and prophecies. The Bible has a storyline. It traces an unfolding drama. The story is God's story. It describes his work to rescue rebels from their folly, guilt, and ruin. And in his rescue operation, God always takes the initiative. When the Apostle Paul reflects on the drama of God's saving work, he says in awe, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Romans 11.36 so only God's revelation could maintain a drama that stretches over thousands of years as though they were days or hours. Only God's revelation can build a story where the end is anticipated from the beginning and where the guiding principle is not chance or fate, but promise. The purpose of God from the beginning centers on his son. He is the Im- image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. Colossians 1, 15 to 16. God's creation is by his son and for his son. In the same way, his plan of salvation begins and ends in Christ. Even before Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, God announced his purpose. He would send his son into the world to bring salvation. Genesis 3.15. So that's been our episode today. This has been Yours in Christ, where I give my seminary degree away for free. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you on the other side. Take care. Mike, you don't want to say bye? Goodbye, guys. (laughs)